Listener Hey, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. And in this episode, we're taking a deep look at why it's becoming more common for women to freeze their eggs. There has been a tenfold increase in the egg freezing cycles for Australian women over the last decade. So it's really, really growing. So we'll talk to a, a biotech expert with all the latest info about how, why, when to do this, how much it costs, success rates. You kind of have to hit a balance in between not freezing too early that the procedure is unnecessary, but not freezing too late in that, you know, it's not really worthwhile and the eggs that you collect are going to have a very low chance of leading to a um, live birth. We'll also talk about a US couple who just welcomed twins using embryos made 30 years ago. These siblings could actually be older than their birth parents if they were, you know, born at the time of the embryo's creation. Find out if that could happen here in Australia. All those questions in the second half of this podcast. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, November 30. Laws for the new National Anti-Corruption Commission are expected to be passed today. So the body will investigate corruption at a federal level, including by ministers and parliamentarians, and it passed the Senate overnight with one amendment from the Greens. Yeah, so that amendment will expand the powers of an inspector who will keep checks and balances on this corruption body. And there was one other sticking point that disappointed the Greens and the crossbenchers, and that was the conditions under which the Commission will hold public hearings where they grill people, mm. which you will have seen in New South Wales in particular. So they'll only be held in exceptional circumstances, which is a clause that the Greens and crossbenchers tried to get removed from the bill so more people would face that grilling, but um, that didn't happen, unfortunately. And the bill passing means Labor has fulfilled an election pledge to pass the legislation by the end of the year. And meanwhile, that censure motion against Scott Morrison Mm. over the secret ministries, those five secret ministries that he swore himself in, will be put to a vote in the federal parliament today. The opposition, perhaps unsurprisingly, won't support the motion, but Liberal MP Bridget Archer has said she is inclined to break ranks and vote with Labor. Yeah, so that's going to pass because Labor have the majority, so that will be a black mark on Scott Morrison's legacy. Mm -hmm. Interesting call from the Liberal Party. Yes, you'd expect them to be loyal to one of their own, but this would have been an opportunity to really break from the Morrison legacy, Mm. which was so damaging to the Liberal Party essentially lost them the election uh, and actually make a statement saying, look, we support integrity in Parliament. We're moving on from that era, but they're not taking that opportunity. Yeah, we're trying to reinvent ourselves and our image. And I think it's important to note that at Censure Motion, in terms of its impact, it's more of a symbolic move. It's it's used yeah. to express a Parliament's disapproval. Nothing's going to really happen. Yeah. I don't think Scott Morrison's going to say, all right, you guys are right. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. really, really sorry. Yeah, that's right. I did the wrong thing. I'm leaving Parliament. No. That's not what's going to happen. There's infighting in the National Party over their opposition to the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Federal MP Andrew G broke ranks saying he will campaign for the voice. And the Western Australian Nationals are completely breaking ranks from the Federal Party. Oh, so this story just kind of, I don't know, to me just gets a bit crazier and crazier. Um, the WA leader, Mia Davis, says she's respectful of the decision their party room has made. It doesn't necessarily align to how the Nationals in Western Australia have approached the issue. The thing here, Tom, is there isn't a date set for the referendum. There isn't even a clear question. So they're like, we don't support this kind of vague thing that doesn't really have parameters 
but we don't like it. Um, so mm. it's, I mean, I think it's a strange move, an ineffective move, and I'm not surprised that some are breaking ranks. Well, they've given an answer to a question that hasn't been uh, written yet. Exactly. Or asked. Yep. So it's way too early, which opens the way for people in their own party to say, hang on a minute, this is not where I stand, or, or also to change their mind as mm. this evolves and we get closer to the form of words for the question, a better understanding of how the voice will work when it's actually legislated as well. So I guess watch this space with the nationals. It, it could change and evolve and potentially more of them could come around. And their main two criticism is that apparently it won't close the gap. But interestingly, coalition government has been in power most of the time that the Close the Gap campaign has been mm. rolled out. So it's they're part of the failure to close the gap. Yeah, it's if, if you care so much about closing the gap... Why don't you do it? What have you been doing? Exactly. Uh, and then that they don't support policies that divide the party based on race. Now, I don't know if you remember, but last year, former Deputy PM Michael McCormack was slammed because he was using that, you know, white supremacist phrase, all lives matter. So I'm like, if you've, on the one hand, saying we don't support policies that divide people by race, and then you have your deputy leader using something that is widely believed to be a bit of a racist dog whistle. I'm like, mm, get your talking points right. His argument, though, is that he's bringing all races together with that statement. Yeah, well, it, but that's not what that statement means. Yeah, I think he was a bit naive to what he was really saying. Mm. 33,000 COVID fines will be withdrawn and refunded after the New South Wales government lost a court battle. I am withdrawing all the fines that are related to those particular offences. Scott Johnston from Revenue New South Wales there. So the Aboriginal Legal Service represented two individuals who received fines between $1,000 and $3,000. They were the fail-to-comply fines. And they argued that the fines didn't provide a sufficiently detailed description of the offences committed and were therefore invalid. Yeah, so then that applied to all the other fines of that nature. So about half the COVID fines issued during the pandemic are being cancelled. It'll cost the state more than $10 million. So they'll pay, you know, the people who already paid will get a mm. refund. The people who <laughs> were like, stuff this, I'm not paying, they won't have to pay. Pretty embarrassing backflip for the New South Wales government. It was so intense at the time. Mm. They were driving police cars up to people having picnics. It, it was a wild time. There was someone who was fined for buying a kebab. <laughs> That's a really costly kebab. But the majority of fines, as it turns out, were issued in lower socioeconomic areas and disproportionately to First Nations people. So New South Wales is the first state to take this move, but it could mean that other jurisdictions follow suit. And the outback crocodile wrangler Matt Wright will face a Darwin court today. He was charged yesterday in relation to a fatal chopper crash that killed his co-star Chris Willow-Wilson earlier this year. So the 43-year-old flew to the Northern Territory yesterday after a warrant was issued for his arrest. After a number of hours in questioning, the Outback Wrangler star was charged with several offences, including attempting to pervert the course of justice, destruction of evidence and interfering with witnesses. And Matt Wright strenuously denies any wrongdoing and then was released on bail after he was charged. All right, in just a moment, uh, Katrina Blouse is joining us as we look at freezing your eggs.
So, Tom, I remember it would have been probably about five years ago when one of my friends decided to freeze her eggs. It was such an unusual thing to publicly talk about. Mm. She made the newspaper and then a magazine did a whole feature article on her. I guess it was something that was happening, but at Mm. that point women weren't talking that openly about it. But now... I feel like it is so normalised. I was in the makeup room only yesterday and one of the journos at work told me that she'd just done it. And I reckon every one of my girlfriends in their 30s, except for one, has frozen their eggs now. Oh, wow. They've actually done it. They're not just talking about it. No, no, they've done it. The, mm. the ones that are single, that is. Mm, yeah. No, I mean, I'm definitely hearing more conversations, but to hear that anecdote from you, I guess that actually fits with the the broader statistical picture because in the last 10 years there's been a tenfold increase in egg freezing cycles in Australia so it is on the rise there's no doubt about it yeah and you know you've got celebrities I guess like Jennifer Aniston speaking publicly about it saying that she wished she had done it so that shows that I guess in in popular culture it's it's becoming much more normalized as a topic of conversation too there was also that really fascinating story that popped up in the news just last week that got us talking about this about that US couple who've welcomed twins using adopted embryos that have been frozen for 30 years. So I guess that's why we decided we needed to do another briefing Mm. topic on this, on why it's becoming more common, I guess what your best chances for success are if you're thinking about doing it, and the future ethical implications surrounding egg adoption and storage. Yeah, as well as how hard it is, the toll it takes on your body to go through this process. Molly Johnston is a lecturer at Monash University. She's been working in the IVF field for the last five years and written a bunch of research. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Why is it becoming way more common? Yeah, so we are seeing a really rapid increase in the number of people freezing their eggs. And I think this is for a number of reasons. The first, I think, is because there is much more awareness of it. People are talking about it. More people are doing it. The clinics are advertising it a lot. And we also see it discussed in mainstream media. But I also think that people are having more awareness around their fertility and the fact that fertility does decline with age. So we're trying to do things to be more proactive about what they can do if they do want to have a family in the future. And I guess the deeper underlying trend behind all of that is that we're having children later. Yes, exactly. There has been absolutely a shift in the timing of having children where we see people are having children later in life. Because of this, it means that your fertility is reduced and the likelihood of you having children or reaching the family size that you desire is decreased. So has the process around egg freezing changed in the last 10 years or so? Has it become more streamlined or less taxing on a woman's body and also cheaper? So egg freezing is essentially the first step of an IVF cycle. So the person undergoing egg freezing will have hormonal stimulation for two weeks and then eggs are collected. So this process hasn't changed, but what has changed is that the clinics have gotten better at it. So we are much better at freezing eggs than what we were, say, 10, 15 years ago. But there's been some also social and regulatory changes that have occurred recently. So in 2012, a regulatory body out of the US declared that egg freezing was no longer experimental, when we really did see a quite a large jump in the number of people freezing eggs from there. In terms of costs, it hasn't gotten any cheaper. If anything, it's getting more expensive. 
there is some uh, rebates that are available through Medicare, but only for people who have a medical threat to their fertility. Okay, so can you give us more detail on the process and, and the toll that it takes on a woman's body? So before you go through a egg freezing collection, the person undergoing egg freezing must undergo um, hormonal stimulation, which means that they will take daily injections for around two weeks. And this is done so that instead of having one egg that's released each month, multiple eggs are matured so that when they are ready to be collected, there is more than one egg available that's mature and could potentially be fertilized and lead to a baby. In terms of the collection process itself, that occurs under a general anesthetic. It's a day procedure. It is uncomfortable. There are risks associated with hormonal stimulation with the most, uh, I guess, severe risk being ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, but it can also lead to severe adverse reactions. It can cause death as well. So given you are stimulating your body to produce more eggs than normally you would each month, does that just make you feel like you've got PMS times a thousand? Mm. Yeah, so people do say that it does have a pretty big impact on their emotions and how they are feeling. Physically, you feel bloated, you feel uncomfortable. And, you know, coupled with this is that, you know, you are hoping that this is going to be successful for you, that after you have this procedure and the eggs are collected, that you are going to secure a good number of eggs. And so, yeah, you've got the impact of the hormones, but I don't think it should be taken lightly that you have to go under a general anaesthetic. That's a big deal, right? Like that's a major disruption and leaves you feeling pretty off. Yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, it does require a lot for someone to go through egg freezing. In addition to just the day surgery, there is time off work. There's the recovery from it. So it is a big thing to go through egg freezing. But the other thing to keep in mind is that it's not necessarily just a, you know, a once off. And a lot of people mm. do require multiple cycles to collect um, a number of eggs that they are satisfied with. Let's talk about what age is kind of the optimum age for doing this for women. And is there a point in time at which women are told, look, you've kind of left your run too late? In regards to age, there is really two things that you have to keep in mind. So the first is that we know that age is associated with the number of eggs as well as the quality of eggs. So you kind of have to hit a balance in between not freezing too early that the procedure is unnecessary but not freezing too late in that, you know, it's not really worthwhile and the eggs that you collect are going to have a very low chance of leading to a um, live birth. Wow, that's an interesting trade-off to have to make. So let's throw an example out there. You haven't found the person that you want to have a baby with. Do you freeze at 33? Do you wait a bit longer? You know, how do you strike that trade-off you just talked about? So if you are someone in your early to mid-30s, you know you want to have children, but your circumstances are not compatible with that, then I think that that would be a time to have a discussion with a GP or a fertility specialist and talk through your options. Egg freezing isn't a guarantee. It will potentially increase your chances of having children later on if you have frozen higher quality eggs, but it's not a guarantee that it will, you know, you will have children or reach your desired family size. Okay. So you're saying early to mid thirties, it would be time to start thinking about freezing, but you wouldn't say that for someone in their late 20s. If you're in your late 20s, I think that that's probably too early to be thinking about egg freezing. Most people who do freeze around there don't ever require their eggs. They don't need to come back for them. They either conceive um, without assistance or they'll conceive through IVF, but they won't use their frozen eggs. And is there a cutoff age where clinics just won't do it for women anymore? 
There is no real national cutoff age. Certain IVF clinics will set different age limits. So it's really clinic dependent on whether they will do an egg freezing cycle with you. But in saying that, if you're getting to your late 30s, early 40s, egg freezing isn't really a great option for you at that point, just because of the eggs are going to be at a um, poorer quality. And at that point, that's where, you know, maybe considering something like conceiving with the use of donor sperm might be a better option. Okay, can you explain the difference between egg and embryo freezing and when each of those options is most appropriate? Yeah, so egg freezing is just a procedure for people who have eggs. And generally, these people won't have partners, so they just freeze their eggs. In some cases where, say, a woman might have cancer and have a partner, they might then consider embryo freezing. An embryo is developed from the union of a sperm and an egg. So this is the embryo that will then be transferred back into the uterus and will give rise to a fetus, which will later become a baby. In the last week, we've had a story in the news about a couple in the US who've adopted embryos that were on ice for 30 years. They've had twins, which the embryo was made 30 years ago, but they've been on ice since then. Could that happen in Australia? And what are the ethics around that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting case to come out of the US. In regards to whether it could happen in Australia, in theory and scientifically speaking, There is no reason to suggest that that couldn't occur, but we do have pretty strong regulations and laws around how long embryos can be kept in storage for in Australia. Now, this differs between different states, but generally it's around five to 15 years. This case does raise some important implications, particularly around the concept of family, as well as how we think about generations. With this case in particular, we know that the um, donor, so the people who created the embryo, the man was aged in his 50s at the time. So that would mean now going 30 years down the track, if he's still alive, would be aged in his 80s. We also don't know whether that couple had any other children. So it is possible that these twins have genetic-related siblings, but it's possible that these siblings could actually be older than their birth parents if they were, you know, born at the time of the embryo's creation. Do you think we've got a long way to go on a societal level in in truly understanding how hard these processes are on women? I mean, in my own case, it was only when I had a friend going through IVF who really explained how hard it was in detail about the process every month and that she was going under a general anaesthetic and you know, some of the hormonal treatments that you talked about earlier, and it was going on for month after month Mm. after month. It goes on for years for some people, IVF, and it's quite similar to egg freezing in in parts of the process. I also noticed that Westpac announced that they're giving employees an extra week's leave if they're undergoing IVF or egg freezing, which is a recognition of the toll it takes. So do you think we've got a a long way to go? And are we starting to sort of make this journey and properly understanding and, and having enough empathy for people going through this? I think that we're definitely doing better in that understanding that IVF is such an emotional process and it takes a real toll on the people going through it. But I do think that it's still a bit of a taboo. People don't frequently talk about what they're going through and that can be quite isolating. There is recently been more talk about supporting people who are going through the IVF process, like with those workplaces offering additional leave and support to kind of support people in this process. 
But I do think that this is something that we do need to make better progress with in understanding the emotional toll it can have on people and understanding how best we can support them during this process. That was Molly Johnston, who's a lecturer at Monash University. And and Tom, I know that we are talking about this more, but just to go back to the person I was telling you about earlier, that Mm. other journo who I was speaking to in the makeup room, she actually took a week of annual leave because she didn't want to tell our male boss that that's what she was doing. She was called to talk to me as another woman about it, but she didn't want to talk about it more broadly. Yeah, well, I guess that's why it's good companies like Westpac, as we mentioned earlier, are bringing in leave specifically for this stuff. Hopefully that not only helps with the the time you need to get over it, but also the conversation around it. If that's part of a workplace policy, then it's hopefully easier to bring up. Yeah, and, you know, I guess you're saying, A, as a woman in my 30s, I'm worried I may not meet my person, and or mm. B, I'm getting older and therefore I'm scared about my chances of conceiving, which are two very deeply personal topics to talk about. So I can understand why a lot of women still keep this secret. Yeah, that's right. You think, oh, it's, it's just stigma, but it's not just some irrational thing that we need to get over. They are legitimately difficult things to talk about with people that aren't really close to you. So, yeah, it's always going to be sensitive, isn't it? Tomorrow on The Briefing, the massive protests in China pushing back against the hardline COVID-0 policy that has been going for almost three years. Listener.